This is the Irish Global Solidarity in 100 Objects podcast, and I'm your host, Kira Regan. But what do we mean by that? What do we mean by global solidarity? What does that look like? For me, global solidarity, it's about engaging with struggles and challenging them. It's about the social ties that bind us, not in a, in a restrictive sense, but more so a collective one. It's about how global issues affect us and what we do about them. Like, who makes the shoes we wear? Or if you take our phones, for example, the minerals used in their production, where do they come from? Who mines them? And how are those people treated? Is there an environmental impact? And also, not to forget, who benefits from their production as well? Ireland has a long-standing heritage of engaging in uncomfortable struggles. And I suppose with this project, and in particular, the exhibition, we wanted to give a platform for the stories of those struggles to be told. I'm reminded of two quotes. One from our previous guest, editorial cartoonist Martin Turner, who said, In this absurd world we find ourselves in, we're better off saying something than nothing. Which in turn reminded me of a brief but poignant quote from self-described black lesbian mother warrior poet Audre Lorde, who said, My silence did not protect me. Your silence will not protect you. On this episode of Irish Global Solidarity in 100 Objects, we have someone who does not shy away from using the power of her platform to share those important stories. Feminist and journalist Orla Ryan. From the very outset, I'm going to say that this particular episode discusses the issue of female genital mutilation, or FGM, right at the beginning. An issue that some may find upsetting or triggering. For those who are unaware, FGM involves the partial or total removal of the external female genitalia or other injury to the female genitals for non-medical reasons and the practice has no health benefits for those it's being practised on. We discussed this issue for roughly 10 minutes at the very start if anyone wishes to skip past. Orla and I discussed the object she contributed to the project, her journalist notepad, how she ended up in Kenya in the first place and working in the media in an era of, quote, alternative facts. Okay, so Orla Ryan, welcome to the Irish Global Solidarity in 100 Objects podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Kira. So do you want to start off by telling us a bit about the object of yours that was included in the exhibition? Yeah, so I had um, a couple of objects. The first one was a notebook and I had two photos as well. So basically the objects were from a trip I took to Kenya in 2019 and it was for a work trip I was looking at the areas of women's rights and in particular female genital mutilation and gender-based violence so the items that I used were a notepad from the trip so just some of my notes um, that I was taking while I was over there and then the images were the first one was of um, a knife and, and two razor blades and um sewing needle and thread to show the implements that were used to cut the girls um, in this process. So these were items that had been surrendered by former circumcisers. So it, you know, kind of showed the the um the nature of the items that were used. And I suppose it is quite 
shocking to see them and it's quite visually striking even as you're talking about them I can feel my my kind of my skin or my the hairs on my skin stand up you know yeah I I hadn't looked at the images really until the other day ahead of the podcast and I'm I'm looking at it right now and it is it's you know it's kind of a frightening image um and the the second image um is of um, a woman called Halei who was a former circumciser so it's it's her holding the the knife and the razor that she used to use and um, Halei is um, a reformed circumciser herself and, and I spoke to her for one of the articles I wrote for the journal and she spoke about her own you know journey with being a circumciser and you know the fact that it was passed on you know from from her mother to her as it is in many families and you know for years she it was just you know a part of her culture and it was the way she made money it was the way you know she put food on the table and you know after years of engagement with groups like um action aid and um the Kamuthe women's network in particular um a local grassroots group people like Calais started to change their views on fgm and you know realized that it wasn't something that they should do anymore so she was one of the circumcisers who um you know gave up the the tools they used to use and you know now works um to talk to other circumcisers and and people to you know kind of discuss fgm and and why it is harmful and why she has changed her mind and believes other people should also stop doing the process yeah uh, one thing i find interesting um that people don't always realize about FGM is that it is mostly women who are doing the cutting. A lot of people assume that it's that it's men that do it. Um, and I think it's interesting that like because the people you spoke to were all women, weren't they, when you were there? Yeah, they were mainly all women. Like we spoke to some religious leaders as well who were all men, but the main focus um of the article on FGM was women. It was um, you know, all women who'd gone through the process themselves, um, a number of circumcisers or former circumcisers explaining, you know, why they did it. And that was just how they were brought up. And it was a part of their culture that they didn't question for a very long time. Um, and yeah, it is mainly done by women to women, but it's in many ways done for men because girls who aren't cut are seen as you know not ready for marriage um, or unmarriageable. Um, yeah. So you know it's it is a process that's done yeah by women to women for men. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the most upsetting parts as well, perpetuated often by their the girls' uh, own mothers as well. Yeah, because they were like the the circumstances I spoke to. You know, they were cut themselves at a very young age. Um, you know, and generally married off when they were. A girl or a very young teenager so it was you know it happened to them as well and it was just seen by many people as a normal part of life and the the rates do vary in different countries and in different parts of Kenya and it has reduced a lot in recent years which is great yeah um, but in the particular area where I was in Garissa County over 90% of women and girls there have been cut it is reducing slowly wow. but it's just such an intrinsic part of life that for many people, it's not questioned. Yeah, yeah. I suppose just to kind of go back as to how and why you ended up there in the first place in Kenya, writing and interview, interviewing these people and writing about um, female genital mutilation. And I suppose perhaps maybe to explore a bit why, why you felt Irish people should um, read or learn or know about this issue and um, why you thought the interest might be there. 
Yeah, I had written about um, FGM in Ireland and some of the initiatives that are happening here to spread awareness about the dangers of it. And I had interviewed some people who had traveled over from Kenya and different parts of Africa um, to be at a conference for ActionAid a few years ago. And I had kind of looked into it from then and it was just something I was I was interested in and thought I could explore more by, you know, going to a country where it's practiced. And I kind of came up with an idea, pitch for um, a series of articles, and I applied to the Simon Cumbers Media Fund, which people might have heard of before. It's produced some some great journalism over the last few years. Sure, yeah. And yeah, so I'm just lucky enough really to, to be granted um, a place uh, via them to, to be able to go over to Kenya. Um, it's not something I would have been able to do without that support. So that was really appreciated. And yeah, yeah it was just something I had looked into in Ireland. So I thought it was something I could explore in more detail um, by going somewhere and actually, you know, reporting from the ground and speaking to people who had been subjected to it, people who had carried it out and people who were trying to now change views on it. And, you know, very often they were the same people, the people who had been through it or maybe done it. And now they are part of um, a number of initiatives to highlight why it is so damaging to women and girls and can have lifelong implications for them. What what kind of response did you get actually to to um, the articles? I know I, I was actually looking at some of them there earlier and I was looking at some of the comments underneath, kind of not sure as to what to um, what to expect. But what how did you feel the response was? There was a huge level of interest. Um, sometimes we find that when we write about um or, you know, maybe use wire copy from from a news service abroad about issues that are happening in other countries, particularly the global sites, that maybe there is a lack of interest in it, or maybe people just think, oh, well, you know, that doesn't affect me in my life. Yeah, so exactly, yeah. um, there's not, there's often not a, a level of interest, but there was actually a huge yeah, level of interest yeah. in these articles. The Article on FGM got over 117,000 views um, to date. I just checked this morning. So um, that's, you know, those are really high views um, for an article. Yeah. Um, and then the series, you know, there was there was three articles in total, you know, over 200,000 views across the whole thing. Um, so it was, it did get a really big reaction. And I think it showed that people are interested to learn about what's happening in other parts of the world. So it did get um, a really big reaction, which was, which was great to see that there was that interest there yeah yeah no it absolutely is I think like you say there's that assumption that there isn't necessarily an interest because it's something that's happening over there yeah and I think we do live in a a global world now where you know we are much more interested in what's happening in other parts of the world and we can google whatever we want and find out you know what's happening in Kenya or somewhere in the global head south or any other part of the world whereas we couldn't do that a few years ago Um, and I think people are generally you know quite interested in what's happening in other parts of the world and and they want to know and you know if you do write articles about Kenya or whatever country it might be and you put it on a platform that has such a wide audience like the journal you know it's easy for people to oh that's actually sounds really interesting I'm going to click into that you know they don't really have to seek it out so I think it's a good way to start conversations and raise awareness of issues that maybe people wouldn't be aware of or wouldn't be talking about otherwise.
why do you cover these issues more specifically the women's rights issues why do you think it's important to have those stories told and those words written down I suppose it's something I've always had an interest in. Um, I'm a feminist and I'm very interested in women's rights um, locally, nationally, internationally. And as I have been working as a journalist for the last few years, I suppose I've realized the power of my platform and the fact that I am privileged enough to work in a job where I have access to a lot of people and I can put a story that they may not have ever heard about um, in front of them, in front of, you know, whatever, 200,000 eyes. And that is a privilege. So I kind of, the last few years in particular, I suppose I've looked at what areas do I want to, you know, put out there and raise awareness of. And, and women's rights has always been front and center for me. So I think, you know, journalism, you know, you're asking about the, the role it plays in, in global solidarity. And I think it plays a huge role because, you know, it's through education and awareness that things can change. So, you know, the media plays a huge role in making people aware of what's happening in the world. And I think, you know, I have a responsibility as well as someone with a large platform to use that to raise awareness of issues like women's rights or maybe what's happening in a part of the world that a lot of Irish people won't be aware of. So, that's just, I suppose, a personal thing for me that it's something I've always been interested in. And then the longer I've been working in journalism, the more I've realized the power of that and the power of my platform and then also the responsibility of using that to highlight certain issues. The era we find ourselves living in, the global pandemic, um, ever-changing political landscapes, more extreme thinking, fake news, Brexit, all of that. How do you feel journalism is changing and evolving in response to that? This is something that comes up a lot in the COVID area era. We're um, we're asked a lot about this, and it's a fair question. Um, I can I can imagine. <laughs> you know, journalism has changed, I suppose, in response to the pandemic in Ireland, in particular. Um, I know the journal.ie do some amazing fact checking on stuff and you're, you guys are really quick with getting that stuff out there as well. It's it's great to see that. Yeah, we, we have um, a dedicated fact checker now, um, Brianna, who's recently come on board. Brilliant. And in general, you know, other members of the team also um, do fact checks. We do them quite regularly, as you say, and I think it's a great asset. Um, misinformation is an interesting one because it it wasn't really an issue in Ireland prior to the pandemic. It was to a very small degree, but it didn't catch on in ways that it did in the US, for example, in the Trump era where, you know, alternative facts became acceptable. <laughs> and, that, you know, the term fake news, I don't particularly like because it was just used and misused so much that it essentially has no meaning and fake news became anything someone like Donald Trump or not just him, but other people, if you didn't like something, you just called it fake news and that was that. So um, I think, you know, the, the media has adapted to that and particularly in Ireland, there's been a huge influx and increase in uh, misinformation since the start of the COVID pandemic. We actually did a series last year where we looked into misinformation and specifically why people share it and why it increased so much in Ireland during the pandemic. And basically, the pandemic was a perfect breeding ground for misinformation because we were living through unprecedented events. People were extremely worried, stressed, scared, anxious, all of those things mm. um, that makes us more susceptible, you know, to click on a link or to share something or forward something that, you know, maybe says 
you know, the army is going to be standing outside of supermarkets from 6am tomorrow morning, go out now and, you know, both buy groceries or whatever it might be. And, you know, people, most people aren't sharing that, you know, to create panic. They're kind of sharing it among their own family and friends saying, you know, I don't think this is true, but I'm, I'm seeing it being shared a lot. So I'm passing it on just in case it is. It just gains so much more momentum. So I think, you know, one of the biggest things for people to be aware of is to check the source of things. Um, and, you know, if it's something you've never heard of. And if it sounds like, oh, this sounds, you know, crazy, then maybe it's not true. So just kind of always check the source of something and also be very aware if something preys on your emotions, if it's designed to make you feel angry or scared, there's probably a reason that it is. And that makes you more likely to share it. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, do do double check the source of everything. It's, it's interesting because you know, this information didn't really take off in Ireland until the pandemic. And then we just saw a huge, you know, spike in that. And that is something, as you say, the journal has been focusing on. We did it before the pandemic, but we definitely ramped up fact checks throughout the pandemic. And that's an ongoing thing that we do now to make sure that, you know, actual facts are out there and yeah. kind of uh, not just to kind of say don't or try not to consume or share bad information also go well look here is good information and here are actual facts that are, are laid out in a clear manner so that people have access to that and you know maybe a, a relative or a friend or whatever is sharing something that's not correct that you know you can go oh actually here's a link to a fact check that's saying not in a condescending way but it's setting out the facts of like why that's actually not correct yeah it's another source of information as well to consider without um being too confrontational about it as well yeah I think it's important not to condescend to people or be like oh god that's so stupid why do you believe it you know just say well actually you know where did you read that I don't think that's true you mm. know here's a fact check on that where it lays out that, it, that that's not actually right Um, just to play uh, devil's advocate, I suppose, for a minute in response to um, what you're saying about the fact checking stuff that you you guys would share to those who don't believe the the quote fact checkers. What's your response to that? Facts are facts. Facts are sacred. You know, I've been on the receiving end of some of that kind of commentary or um, remarks that are made online um, about me on foot of writing fact checks. Mm. Um, and that's kind of it's also uh, a tiny part of my job. I know people who do it full time and get a lot more abuse. I mean, no matter what you write about, there'll always be people who disagree with you and or don't believe you, but facts are facts. So we'll keep writing fact checks <laughs> and they will continue to exist in the world. I suppose the reason I'm asking is when you have people who are perhaps going to be sitting around their Christmas, ta- their, the, the Christmas dinner mm-hmm. and having these conversations and, you know, when they're confronted with these kinds of responses, maybe they don't necessarily know how to how to interact with that. Yeah, I suppose in, in conversations like that, you know, sometimes you're aware it's a person that no matter what you say, you're not going to convince them. But, you know, I think it's always good to say, well, actually, you know, that's not true. I, you know, I, I don't believe that. And, you know, maybe check out the journal or check out, you know, whatever um, fact finding service there is online and just say, you know, maybe check the source on that. I don't think that's right, but there's a lot of good information out there as well. Any advice you might have for a young person, particularly a young woman, um, looking towards journalism as a career? I know there is plenty of um, journalists who are women who would, are amazing role models for, for young women. Um, I mean, yourself included, Una Malali, Claire Byrne, Roshi Ningle. There's such a variety 
I suppose just uh, just do it, <laughs> right? Um, uh, if you can, try and get an internship somewhere, you know, even if you're still in school or you're in college or whatever. I know that was a big thing for me. Um, I did an internship with a local newspaper when I was in TY, so I probably would have been about 15 at the time, and I loved it. And, you know, I think, yeah, just apply to places, send off emails, send off your CV. That happened. I did that numerous times where I was like, I'm absolutely never going to hear back from this newspaper or publication. And a lot of times I did. And they were like, yeah, come in. Um, So I suppose just put yourself out there and uh, try and get internships, hopefully a paid internship. That always helps. Um, But yeah, just keep writing and submit to things, you know, and even if you're not at that stage yet of getting inter- internships somewhere. Like if you have, you know, a school paper, write for that. Definitely if, if you're in college, write for the school newspaper, or sorry, the college newspaper, I should say. Um, just keep writing and keep plugging away at it. Um, I do find like I have, I have a journalism master's, but I do find that in general, like working in a newsroom has been more beneficial than anything I've done education wise obviously it's great you know to have that background and experience but nothing beats actually being in a newsroom or being you know on the ground interviewing people and actually doing the work of a journalist so to get experience at whatever level and work your way up is is the thing I would say. Well thank you for your time Orla I know you're busy at the minute we appreciate you taking the time to uh, come and talk to us and particularly being a part of the exhibition both at the launch night and for contributing objects so thank you very much for that I was delighted to be a part of it it was a really fascinating exhibition and it was great to be asked to be a part of it so thank you thanks to our guest Orla Ryan for joining us on the podcast and for bringing her words and her photos to this project they are yet another invaluable contribution for our next episode guest host Tony Daly chats with the trade unionist on the climate crisis and what the role of adults is in supporting young people's activism. This podcast is brought to you by developmenteducation.ie, run by AidLink, Concern Worldwide, the Irish Development Education Association, the National Youth Council of Ireland, Self-Help Africa, TROCRA and 8020 Educating and Acting for a Better World, with support from Irish Aid. The podcast is produced by Dylan Crean and Tony Daly. Our theme music is by Jump Lead. We'll see you next time. <laughs>